All right, that's where we're going to be. First Chronicles chapter 9. Turn there on your device or in your Bible so you can follow along. Let's pray before we set in. Lord, thanks so much again for today and for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word that you have uh, delivered and preserved for us so that we might know who you are and what you have done on our behalf uh, so that we might understand what this life is about and the things going on in our world and how we can draw nearer to you and have our lives make a great eternal difference uh, for our families and our community and just as we're a part of the work that you want to do all around the world. Our desire, Lord, is to understand more of who you are and, and what you have said and what you have commanded and what you desire. Help us, Lord, to understand as we look at your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts the things that he knows we need to hear. And we pray, Lord, you would build up and bless each and every person for being here today. In your name we pray, amen. So we call California the golden state. New Jersey is the garden state. Wyoming is the equality state. How about Tennessee? Anybody know? The volunteer state. That nickname was first given in the War of 1812 due to the key role played by volunteers from the Tennessee militia. The moniker was cemented forever when President James Polk of Tennessee issued a call to his state for 2,600 volunteers to join the Mexican-American War effort in response, 30,000 Tennesseans volunteered. Now, Today, volunteerism isn't quite so important in the volunteer state, I'm sad to report. In 2019, the state ranked 31st out of the 50 states in D.C. in volunteerism. Don't feel too good about yourself. California finished in 47th place. Way to go, California. Maybe that's why Tennessee is having such a poor volunteer problem. It's because so many Californians are going there. That's what I think. So in the year 538 BC, King Cyrus of Persia issued a call for Jewish volunteers to leave exile in Babylon after 70 years and return to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city of Jerusalem, resettle the promised land of Israel. It was an astonishing fulfillment of biblical prophecy and an awe-inspiring display of God's grace. It was the one true God of heaven and earth saying to the world and to all of human history, look at what I can do. And then what was more amazing than that is that he said, and now I want you to join with me in this incredible work. He said it to regular old human beings living in Babylon at the time. Initially, about 50,000 Jews answered the call to return to worship in Jerusalem. Now, this was a new era for the people of God, a new era for the nation of Israel, a nation that had been decimated and destroyed, brought back from the dead in a way unlike anything that had ever happened before, only to be outmatched uh, by God doing it again in May of 1948 when he brought Israel again back into her land. But uh, initially, 50,000 Jews came. It was a new era of Jewish history. But this era was not going to be built around a great leader like Moses or a great warrior like Joshua or a great king like David. No, this era was going to be founded on, surrounded 
founded around the temple, this new temple that they were going to be built. Sometimes we call it Zerubbabel's temple, but it was the temple that they were rebuilding. That temple, which was going to be the heart of the nation and the the heart of this new era, it could not function without Levites. But in the records of Ezra and Nehemiah, we find that of all the people who came, only a few hundred Levites agreed to volunteer to relocate from Babylon. A lot was depending on them, and they would have a lot to do. First Chronicles chapter 9 shows us the kinds of things they were doing. Now, when I think of Levites, what does a Levite do? Uh, most often, I imagine a big solemn ritual. I think of the drama of blood being spilled and the lifting of oblations as incense fill the air, and, and the Psalms of David are resounding through a gold covered court, right? That's what I'm thinking of, this super high and religious experience, this uh, amazing thing happening in this special building, the temple. But this text here, as we've had it read to us, it gives us a very different view of the Levites' ministry. That other stuff was happening, the sacrifices were going on, but that was the priests doing that. The Levites had a very different ministry, And as we look at this list, many of their tasks seem mundane, even menial, too small to be important. But these functions were each part of the important work of connecting people to God and reviving the heart of a nation. God presented all of this work as supremely important so that God's people could once again be in the presence of God, have communion with him, receive atonement from him, and be a testimony to the world around them. Now, we as Christians in the New Testament era of grace, we call it the dispensation of grace or the church age, we as Christians are not Levites, but as many of you know, the New Testament describes us as being a holy priesthood. We are all called to be priests. We're invited to volunteer in the service of God in small ways and not so small ways. That's up to the Lord. From this example in 1 Chronicles 9, we can find some spiritual principles for ourselves about our own response to God's call and our own ministry to others in all sorts of different ways and how even small service done for the Lord makes a big difference. So let's look at verse 22. The total number of those chosen to be gatekeepers at the thresholds was 212. They were registered by genealogy in their settlements. David and the seer Samuel had appointed them to their trusted positions. So in general, uh, these gatekeepers, these Levite gatekeepers, were tasked with protecting the temple and granting access to the temple. And we'll see some other duties in the coming verses. But their job is described by one source this way, one who is occupied with the gate. When we hear the word gatekeeper, you know, I, I think that when I hear the word gatekeeper, most often it's sort of given in a negative sense. It's, it's describing someone who stands between you and the person you want to talk with, uh, someone who is restricting access. Oh, that person is the gatekeeper for this official or this leader or this president or whoever. And so we don't want to think of this in a negative sense at all. The gatekeepers here were all about, yes, protecting the temple, but granting access, bringing people in so that they could be in communion with the Lord. And they were occupied with the gate. Their presence, their attention, their focus was on the temple of the Lord. That's what they were about. This was the place where men could hear from God, where they could give worship to him and receive atonement. 
But we find as we read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they were surrounded by enemies who worked really hard in all sorts of ways to stop this temple from being built, stop the wall from being built, stop people from coming into the temple. A lot of enemies. And so the Levites here, they did stand guard. It wasn't just a religious job. They had a very practical job of standing guard and protecting the temple, protecting access to the temple, protecting the sanctity of the temple, while also granting access to it so people could come in. And this duty, we're told, could be traced back to David and Samuel. David was really instrumental in organizing the Levites in the temple. But in fact, it goes all the way back to the tabernacle service during the wilderness wandering uh, through Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron. And so this is a long tradition. This wasn't a new thing that Nehemiah established. It wasn't even something that just David established. This had been from the beginning, before there was a temple, before there was a tabernacle, as God was saying, I want you to serve me here's a way you can serve me as gatekeepers in my house. And the truth is God has always called for volunteers to minister in his presence and to point people to the right direction so that they can meet with him and to maintain whatever the place of worship is so that God can be found by those who are seeking. Right? So, so the Lord says, I, I want you to serve me. What does that mean? It can mean a lot of different things. But he says, primarily, I want you to be in my presence so that I can direct you and show you what to do and give you gifts and build up testimonies in your life and do all sorts of cool, small and large things through your life. I also want you to be in a position so that you can grant access to me, to the people around you. I want you to be able to direct people towards me as my ambassador. And third, we have seen from the beginning, God says, I want you to maintain a place where all of this can happen in a special way. What did God do with the very first two people? He put them in a garden. He said, I want you to maintain this garden and tend it because we're going to be together here. You fast forward to the tabernacle. He says, we're going to have a bunch of people who are working to maintain the tabernacle so that people can gather with me here. Fast forward to the temple under Solomon and it becomes a little bit more complex and a little bit more involved. Now we're in the church age. And even though this isn't the only place we can meet with God, God says, when my people gather together, whether it's in a building like this, whether whether it's in a home somewhere, whether it's by the riverside or on a beach, when you gather together, I'm there with you in a special way and I do a special kind of ministry with you and I would love for people to volunteer to be a part of maintaining that space so that people can meet with me in that special way. And it's sad that there's so much opposition to this beautiful job of connecting God to people and people to God, but there is. And in this time, there was serious opposition. In some cases in the world today, being a Christian, a servant to the Lord, means that you're going to face much more extreme opposition than other places in other times. The believers in places like Nigeria or areas of the Middle East or certain areas of Asia, they cannot gather together openly and freely the way we are and not expect to have um, reprisal or oppression or persecution of some kind. And so there is opposition to this work the Lord has given us to do. When the call went out for people to return to Israel... We're told in the book of Ezra that anyone who wanted could come and anyone whose spirit the Lord had roused could come, and that's who went. But we notice, even though it was a volunteer thing, even though they said, yes, I will come and do it, once they got there, once they showed up and said, I'm here to serve the Lord, they didn't get to pick their own duties. The assignments were distributed and they were directed. 
Some were distributed by lot, we'll see. Some were given based off of the skill you had and the ability you had. Some were given based off of other qualifications. Each individual Levite would be specifically assigned. But all of them had this one thing in common, and it was this willingness. Who's willing? Whose heart has the Lord stirred? And the other thing that they had in common is that they were faithful and capable. Capable of just showing up to do what the Lord asked them to do that day. And they were faithful to do it. Verse 23 says, So they and their sons were assigned as guards to the gates of the Lord's temple, which had been the tent temple. The gatekeepers were on the four sides, east, west, north, and south. So we're told in First Chronicles 26 that the east gate was the most prestigious. It had a few more guards than others. But among these 212 gatekeepers, status and seniority wasn't a thing for this job. It didn't matter for gate duty. Which gate you went to on your shift was assigned by lot. But no matter which gate you were stationed at, this was a wonderful job. You were able to bring people in to meet with God himself. You were responsible to maintain the sanctity of the Lord's house. You were helped, helping to pump the spiritual heart of a new nation. And that's a wonderful thing. Verse 25 says, their relatives came from their settlements at fixed times to be with them seven days. So there were 212 gatekeepers. That sounds like a lot. If you think about, well, the temple wasn't that big, you know, that sounds like a lot, but we have to remember that Levitical duty was 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It was round the clock all the time. And so there wasn't that many guys to do the work uh, based off of how much work there was to do. We're not told exactly how they handled shifts, whether it was eight hours or 12 hours or what, but they would have worked a full week, we're told. You were a week on duty, and scholars kind of... Uh, hypothesized based off of maybe they did eight hours, maybe they did 12-hour shifts on and off. And they hypothesized you were on, on duty for one week and then off for three or maybe off for five or seven, somewhere in that vicinity. Let's call it you were on duty one week a month about for the whole week. Now, during festival weeks, Passover, tabernacles, those sorts of things, everybody was on duty together because Jerusalem would swell with people and there was a whole lot extra to do. But in general, let's say you were on duty at the temple all week, one week a month. And we find here that this Levitical service was a family affair. Even if mom and the kids weren't actually on duty in the temple courts or at a gate, the whole of family life was oriented toward and dedicated to the service of the Lord, the house of the Lord, the worship of God. As a family, it was a group effort that required commitment and dedication. Not only would there be the week on, but you'd have to consider the commute. Some of you have to commute to work. I was talking to a friend this week. Um, his, his company went to remote during COVID. Now that they're, they're talking, well, are we going to go back? Or are we going to stay remote? And he said, yeah, if we go back to in the office, I'm going to quit. Because since COVID happened, they moved to a different city. He said, my commute will be three hours each way now, and I'll just I'll quit so that I can get a remote job somewhere else. That's too much of a commute. I get it. Now think about these people. They walked everywhere. And the tribe of Levi did not have any land or territory the way the other tribes did. Instead, the Lord was their inheritance. He was their portion. But they had to live somewhere. So what had happened when they assigned all the land of Israel to the tribes, they gave 48 cities to the Levites throughout the land. In each territory, there will be a couple of cities here and there. 
When you weren't on duty in the temple, you were sent back to whatever city you lived in throughout the land of Israel so that you could minister there. You weren't just vacationing three month, three weeks a month. You were going back into the rest of the nation to minister and to speak the truth of God and to explain to people uh, his word and those sorts of things. Now, that's not a, such a big ask if you lived in one of the Levitical cities in the land of Benjamin. Jerusalem is in the land of Benjamin, and these people are walking everywhere. So it's not such a big ask to commute that way. But what if your home was up on the coast of Asher, way up in the north? That's quite a trip on foot. Maybe your Levitical city was Golan. That was in the tribe of Manasseh. And that meant you would have to cross the river Jordan every time you came and went from your week at the temple. Your commute was days long on foot. And in some cases, dangerous. You know, we talk about, you know, the Good Samaritan. I mean, it was not safe to travel on a lot of these roads. It was not always safe to try to cross a river. There was problems and difficulties involved. And that was the, the life that a lot of these people lived. But they said, you know what? I still want to serve the Lord despite the difficulty and despite what it will cost me to do it. And this Levitical life would require a lot of trust in the Lord too. Aside from the travel, your own home and fields would have to take a backseat position. These people had homes, they had gardens, they had little stables they might put an animal or two in. And all of those things would have to take a backseat to their dedication to the house of the Lord and to the service of God. Because at least one week a month, probably more like two weeks when you include travel and all of that, your garden is not being attended. Your home is left empty. Your animals, you have to figure out how they're going to get fed and all of that. Because we're told here that the relatives would come too. And so they would have to trust the Lord. Lord, we trust you that no one's going to go and tear up our garden. Lord, we trust you that no one's going to go and destroy our home. Lord, we trust you that there's not going to be a fire to go through our city and, and wipe it all out. A lot of trust in the Lord, but they would have to make that choice to say, okay, but I am dedicating myself, including the trappings of my life. I'm dedicating my home, my fields, my garden, my animals, my family. We're dedicating ourselves to serving the God who has asked us to serve him. Aside from travel and aside from your home being left open or left alone sometimes, while on the job, you relied on the contributions of other Israelites for your food. These people weren't independently wealthy. They didn't have dividends. I always love when we play Monopoly and you get the chance card. It's like, you won a beauty contest, $10, right? They weren't just getting $10 from beauty contests. The rest of Israel were to come and give contributions to the temple so that these Levites could eat while they were working. And so they had no ancestral land passed down from generation to generation as a fallback. But all of these things that I've just been listing out, none of these things were actually a downside. In human reasoning, we might look at them and say, hey, this is not a great plan. What's your long-term plan? What are your long-term financial goals and all of that sort of thing? None of these were actually a downside. When we get to listen in on the thoughts of a truly spiritual man, David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, we all want to be more like David. We all want to have a relationship like he did with the Lord. And when we listen in on his thoughts, what did he say about all of this? He said, better is one day in the courts of the Lord than a thousand anywhere else, than a thousand in the palace that I live in. He said, oh, that I could dwell in the house of the Lord as a doorkeeper. That's where I want to be. And so we see just the spiritual richness and the spiritual specialness that these guys had as they served the Lord. It wasn't just about unlocking doors or keeping vandals out. 
This Levitical life was about being in the presence of God and opening up access so others could be near him too. Now today, there is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to go to a a professional priest in order to interact with God. The veil has been torn. Jesus came, he said, I fulfilled the law. All of these things in the tabernacle and the temple, they were looking forward to me and to my sacrifice and to my work. And now you can come boldly to the throne of grace. You can come right in thanks to the work that I have done. And so he is our mediator now. But if you're a Christian here this morning, The New Testament describes you as a servant ambassador in the house of God. And you've been invited and and called to live as a steward of grace, doing good to all, especially the household of faith, the Bible says, building up the body of Christ. Like with these Levites, there are a lot of ways that we can be involved in that calling, all sorts of ways, big ways, small ways, practical ways, all kinds of things. We can't list them all out. God has provided a great variety of gifts and opportunities and assignments and circumstances and and all of these different things for people who want to serve. And that service is meant to become the focus of our lives. To serve God means we're ready to leave any net behind we need to, leave any field behind we need to, ready to to leave the human parts of life unattended if need be so that we can live out our calling as servant ambassadors, as Christians, that our time and our attention and our passions are always oriented toward how I can serve the Lord, how I can be in his presence and, and bring others into his presence as well. Verse 26 says, but the four chief gatekeepers who were Levites were entrusted with the rooms and the treasuries of God's temple. So it wasn't just rooms full of gold and silver. It's not like a Scrooge McDuck thing where they're swimming in all the coins, right? All you children of the 90s, you know what I'm talking about. Loved watching Scrooge McDuck swim in that swimming pool full of gold coins. But these storerooms were, were not just about treasure. The rest of the Israelites in the country were supposed to bring in contributions as daily portions for the gatekeepers and singers to eat, right? So that they could uh, do their work. These four guys were tasked with administrating those resources so their fellow servants wouldn't go hungry. Sadly, during the time of Nehemiah, two things happened that brought the ministry of these Levites to a grinding halt and really the the ministry of the whole temple to a stop. First, the people of Israel stopped giving. So the gatekeepers and the singers were forced to abandon their posts. They were going hungry. They were starving. There was no food to eat. And so we're told they went back to their own fields to try to scratch out some food so that they could... uh, eat something. (laughs) Sadly, uh, beyond that, an even worse thing was not only were the storehouses and storerooms empty, but one of these guys in charge, one of these chiefs allowed a pagan Ammonite official named Tobiah to move in to one of these rooms and live there, defiling the temple. Now, Tobiah hated the Lord, and he hated the Jews, and he hated the temple. What in the world was he doing there? Well, he was influential. He was an official in the area, a a Gentile official in the area. He had position. He had worldly power. And we're told that that these chief gatekeepers and other people in in Jerusalem had bound themselves to him, and and there was like a marriage relationship. He was the father-in-law of some. They had 
had thrown in with him, brought a fox into the hen house and said, well, this guy has influence. This guy has power. This guy makes promises to us. Yes, he hates us. Yes, he hates our God. Yes, he hates our temple. Yes, he tried to put a stop to all of this, but we're throwing in with him because we think he might be able to help us out in some way. And it was a huge mistake. They were supposed to be bound to the Lord, not to this influential guy who was an Ammonite who hated the Lord. And so Nehemiah comes in. It's an incredible scene in his book. He sees what's going on. He says, where are the Levites? He shows up. Nobody's there. He says, where are the Levites? They said, they all went home. There's no food. There's no offerings. Everybody stopped giving to the house of the Lord. And he looks in one of the rooms and there's a bunch of stuff in there. He's like, what, who's been sleeping in this room? And they're like, oh yeah, Tobiah the Ammonite. You know, the guy who's kind of tried to get you killed a bunch. And Nehemiah just starts grabbing his stuff and just chucking it out on the street. And he calls these four chief gatekeepers in, he says, you're all fired because you're not trustworthy to do this work God has given you to do. And it says, we're told that he, he replaced them with men who could be trusted. We've seen that word a couple of times, once in verse 22, now in verse 26, that word entrusted. It says the Levites were entrusted with this work. You know, God wants to entrust you with ministry. I know it's easy for me to think, I have to do things for God because I owe him. I'm in arrears to him. Look at all the things he's done for me and I don't want to seem ungrateful so I better do things for him. Hey, it's true that we owe God, but that is not the way that God thinks about service. He says, hey, yes, I want you to serve me and serve in my house, but I no longer call you slaves and servants. I call you friends. I've made you my children. You're my sons and daughters. I want to include you in the eternal reward of heaven and all of these things. I want to entrust you with ministry. I want to share that treasure of ministry with you. You know, if we think about, well, I have to do things for God because I owe it to him. The Bible says it's his breath in your lungs. Every single breath that you take, you add to what you owe God. It is by his grace that we're alive. It's by his mercy that we're not consumed, right? Not to mention the cleansing of our sins, not to mention the changing of our lives, not to mention the watching over us and giving us his mercy and giving us his provision and giving us his providence to work good through our circumstances and bringing us into heaven. You think we could ever pay back what we owe to God? Every single breath we take is a debt to him that we could never pay off. And so if I'm thinking, well, I have to serve God, otherwise he'll be mad at me and I'm in arrears to him and I owe him and I don't want it to be uneven, we're just thinking about it completely wrong. That's not how God thinks about it. Remember, he sent out his 12 disciples, two by two. He later sent out 72 disciples. And he says, I'm sending you out with my authority and my power. You're going to go on my behalf. It's like I'm going to those cities, but you're going with those cities. You know, the Lord came to men like Abraham and to Samuel and David and Moses and Jonah and Gideon, to all of them. And to each one of them, he came to them and he said, I'm God, I can do whatever I want. And I want to give you an opportunity to watch over some spiritual treasure. Jonah, the people of Nineveh are precious to me. They are a treasure to me. I want to save them. I want to bring them back from the brink of judgment and destruction. There are those I love so much there. They just need to know that they can and turn to me and receive salvation. I, I, I have this treasure. Will you go with it and oversee it and, and maintain it and minister there? Sadly, when we look at it that way, Jonah's like, no, I want him to burn, burn that stuff, grind it all up. 
And, and, but the Lord wants to entrust us. In 1 Peter, we're told that God gives each one of us a gift to serve with as members of his house. But what we notice here from this example of these chiefs in this verse is that service to God isn't something that is just automatically continued and renewed no matter what. It's based on faithfulness. These guys were not faithful. They let Tobiah the Ammonite come in and defile the Lord's temple and bring the work of the temple to a stop. And Nehemiah, who was God's administrative representative in that situation, he said, you're done because you are no longer trustworthy to do what the Lord has asked you to do. Now, this example, again, it's a, great, it's a great lesson for us because on the one hand, it seems like such a boring, unimportant thing. I get to watch a closet. I'm a, I'm a chief of the Levites and you want me to watch a closet and like count how much grain is in there? But when that duty went undone, the whole work of the ministry suffered. In fact, it came to a stop until faithful men were put in the position and, and things were put in their proper order. The assignments the Lord offers us may not seem as high profile as we'd like, but everything he calls us to has value. Even if it's counting beans, right? If the Lord says, I need you to count beans in this closet, then it matters. It has eternal value. If he's the one asking you to do it, and we see that example right here. And just because a person is a chief doesn't mean they are above mundane service to the Lord. Verse 27, they spent the night in the vicinity of God's temple because they had guard duty and were in charge of opening it every morning. So the gatekeepers had this simultaneous duty of guarding from intruders and granting access to attenders. And Christian service is similar on a devotional level. God gives us the privilege of inviting others into his family. In one parable, Jesus talks about what it means for us to to be serving Christians who proclaim the gospel, right? And he says, it's like this. A master said to his servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in. Not everyone will come in. A lot of people will turn you down, but compel people to come in. And he says that my house may be filled. At the same time, in the epistle of Jude, Jude, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, told the Christians, guard the truth, contend for the faith. Why? Because there are those who want to creep in and defile these things. They want to defile the truth. They want to defile the church. And so on the one hand, we're compelling people to come in and granting access to to attenders, but also guarding against intruders who want to destroy what the Lord is doing. Verse 28 Some of them were in charge of the utensils used in worship. They would count them when they brought them in and when they took them out. Others were put in charge of the furnishings and all the utensils of the sanctuary, as well as the fine flour, wine, oil, incense, and spices. So, so far we've seen no altar tasks, right? No big fancy thing. No like, take the fatty lobe and do whatever it is we do with that, right? None of that so far. But the chronicler here is describing for us a bunch of custodial, administrative, even janitorial jobs. But these duties were just as sacrificial as offerings on the altar. They required dedication and focus. A faithful Levite would need to render their, this service carefully and purposefully and regularly. Because without these small chores, without these little duties, a daily sacrifice couldn't happen. As the text unfolds, we get the impression of a lot of activities, a lot of moving parts, right? But not that many people on shift to do it. Jesus is up front with us. He calls us into service. And he's up front with us. He says, hey, by the way, 
there's a lot to do in serving me and there's always going to be uh, not as many people as you'd like doing it. What did he say? He said, the harvest is great. The workers are few. Pray that the Lord will send out more workers into the harvest. Meanwhile, you go and do the work. These Levites, you know, they didn't have time nor the kind of hearts that wanted to, to just spend their days complaining that so many other Levites stayed in Babylon. A bunch of Levites stayed in Babylon. These 212 guys weren't sitting around being like, where's everybody else? Why didn't this person, that person, or the other person come with us? I'm the only one. They didn't do that. They set about their business week by week, day by day. God had stirred up their hearts, and so they responded. God was using them. They were a meaningful part of the rebirth of a, a once dead nation. Faithfulness focuses on what I'm called to do, not what others should be doing. A faithful servant says, I could, not you should, right? We just, what is the Lord asking me to do? Am I counting beans? Am I preparing an offering? Am I opening a gate? Am I talking to this person? Am I going back home to minister to somebody? What is the Lord asking me to do? I don't know what he's asked the people in, in Golan to do. I don't know what he's asked the people over here to do, but here's what he's asked me to do, and I'm going to do it. Verse 30 says, some of the priest's sons mixed the spices. So the mixing of temple spices was a restricted job. According to the Mosaic law given in Exodus 30, specific people had to follow a specific recipe to make these specific spices for a specific purpose. It was very regulated. And to go outside of those boundaries was totally unlawful. So for this job, it wasn't just the casting of lots, or it wasn't just like, hey, who's going to pull the forks out and put them back, that kind of thing. For this job, it, it, was, it, it demanded specific authorization. You had to be a, 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 from a specific line, and it required study and skill. And so it was a slightly different kind of job. Verse 31, a Levite called Mattathiah, the firstborn of Shalom, the Korahite, was entrusted with baking the bread. Some of the Kohathites' uh, relatives were responsible for preparing the rows of the bread of the presence every Sabbath. Early on in the pandemic, baking bread became super popular. Anybody get into baking bread over the last couple of years? We're breaking all the trends, you guys. We didn't bake any bread, I guess. But anyway, uh, the internet tells me that baking bread became really popular. The problem was... Americans baked all the flour away. One company saw their sales of flour increase by 2,000% during the lockdowns. Flour shortages remained a persistent problem, even while supplies for other hoarded items started to bounce back at grocery stores. So this particular fellow, Mattathiah, he was the bread baker at this time when this record was made. And he's singled out by name and by family. And I love that we're given his name. I love that the Lord reminds us that when you serve him, you're not just a cog in a machine. You're not just a, a, a nameless drone. You're not just a warm body. He says, yeah, there's a lot to be done, but man, I, I'm calling you individually, Mattathiah, from this family. I know who you are. I know your family. I know where you're from. I know what's going on. I've counted the hairs on your head. I've given everyone a number. I've saved every one of your tears in a bottle. You, Mattathiah, I have a special job for you. You're gonna be entrusted with baking bread. And I just love that we're given his name because it reminds us that we are the Lord's beloved children. He knows you. He knows your name. You're not just, just a, a, a worker bee in his mind. 
He's loved you from eternity past, known everything about you, and he's called you to participate and partner with him by name. Now, these loaves would be set out on a special table once a week. This task was directly connected with ritual and worship in the temple. It was kind of a a platform ministry in a sense, and it required reliability. It required a specific schedule The bread must be prepared and displayed in a certain way week by week. It was a team effort between the baker and these others to accomplish uh, this particular duty every Sabbath according to a schedule. The showbread, by the way, reminds us of Christ's persistent holy presence. It reminds us that he is the bread of life. It reminds us that he is a provider and sustainer and that when we come to him, we will never go hungry. This was a special ministry, but it wouldn't have been possible if the other Levites hadn't prepped the flour and cleaned the utensils and if Israelites hadn't contributed to the work. So again, we see all the pieces coming together to accomplish the same work of of this temple living and working and, and doing what it's supposed to do in the nation. Verse 33 The singers, the heads of the Levite family, stayed in the temple chambers and were exempt from other tasks because they were on duty day and night. I've done a lot of singing over the years. I can't say I've ever had to sing in the middle of the night. Like someone shakes me in my bed. We got to sing. It's three in the morning. We need to sing. (laughs) Oh, okay. That's never happened. But (laughs) these singers were on duty round the clock just in case a 2 a.m. sing-along needed to happen, I guess. (laughs) But the truth is, when you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, Anytime big things happen or even some small things happen, it was like, okay, everybody wait. Before we do this thing, it's time for all of us to sing together and worship. They were just doing praise services at the drop of a hat. Uh, And so these singers were told by Nehemiah, they built settlements for themselves around Jerusalem. They said, hey, my Levite family is from this city, wherever, but we are on call all the time. So we're going to build our settlements around Jerusalem. And we're told they were exempt from other jobs because, as one translator puts it, the task was upon them. Day and night, it might be time to worship. And we see in Ezra and Nehemiah just the emphasis that was put on corporate praise. As they reestablished this nation, they were determined to be a worshiping people. Now, these particular Levites had specific skill that they could use to facilitate worship with the whole congregation. And this singing brought sanctification and joy and thanksgiving and celebration. The singing of God's people was heard far and wide, we're told in these books, and was a testimony of God's power and his grace. And what an amazing witness it would have been to those unbelieving peoples around Jerusalem. Because they know that these Jews came back to a ruined city to waste. No temple, no wall, no buildings, no homes. And a very short time later, there they are lifting high and loud the praises of their God who had filled their hearts with rejoicing and done the impossible through them. And he said, we're going to praise our God who used us to rebuild a temple, who used us to rebuild a wall, who used us to resettle this land. And like I said, there was just, there was worship at the drop of a hat in these couple of books. They worshiped when they laid the foundation of the temple. And then when the wall was finished, they worshiped when more Jews returned from Babylon. They said, we better stop and sing. They worshiped when they realized one day that they needed to confess their sin publicly. Despite the difficulty of the days, they were always ready to praise God and remind themselves of his steadfast love. Part of our making the most of the time we have is by worshiping with songs and hymns and spiritual songs, marking our days with thanksgiving to God. 
worshiping him for who he is and letting that worship be a public proclamation and testimony to the world around us. So as these different jobs came into focus, we see that some of them were randomly assigned by lot. Some required individuals with a certain set of skills. Some meant you'd be on duty day and night. Others would be a weekly thing. Some would require you to live in Jerusalem. Some would allow you to live elsewhere in the land. While one fellow was inventorying, another might be inviting a guest inside the court. While one man was tuning up an instrument of David, another was taking stock of the food of the shift coming on duty. While one man was baking, another was just being in the vicinity in case he was needed for something. But all together, it was part of the same work, the great work of keeping the temple open and functioning. You've heard of the central nervous system. This was the central spiritual system. And if their nation was to survive, the spiritual life would have to be thriving. And these guys got to be a part of it. The jump from their experience to our application isn't far. God looks at the church and he says, listen, you are a nation of priests set aside for my service. You're set aside for the building of a spiritual house. And we have all sorts of things we can do to serve the Lord and build up his house and proclaim him and offer worship and be a blessing to others. It's a huge effort and there's a place for each and every one of us to serve the Lord. And as we see here and elsewhere, every job in God's service matters. He decided for whatever reason to use people like you and me to do his work. And even though he's called us to do it and he's our king and it's his decision, yet he doesn't force us to do it. He invites us. He invites anyone who wants to volunteer to be a part of it. Just like he did here in 1 Chronicles 9. They, they were invited by proclamation through the providential work of God. But remember, many Levites heard the call in Babylon, but decided to stay in Babylon. They decided to stay in exile on purpose. Imagine for a moment being one of those individuals. Because you see, to be a Levite meant that you were a person whose whole existence was, was supposed to be to serve God. That's what you were set aside for. But there you were in Babylon, no longer in exile. You were there by choice. In the town square, you might meet a fellow Israelite and hear them ask, well, where are you from and what do you do? Well, I'm a Levite, but I stay here. I don't serve the Lord. I don't fulfill the function which my tribe has been called out to fill. A Jew would know that Levites, they existed to serve God. That was the whole point. The Levites in our passage were serving because they volunteered, but they volunteered to come and be who they already were made and set apart to be. They were already called to do this job. And the Lord said, do you want to do it? And this group said, yes, we do. When God whispered to their hearts, come and be with me and we'll do a great work together. That's what I've wanted for you all along. They said, yes, what will we be doing? Well, some big things, a lot of small things, but all significant things. This text shows us that all ministry matters when God has given it to us. Whether it's baking bread or unlocking a gate or playing an instrument or organizing a group or proclaiming the word. As Christians, we are invited to serve the Lord in all sorts of ways, big and small. What does the Lord want you to do? Ask him. He's the master. I don't know what the Lord wants you to do. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is drawing you towards or what he's gifted you towards. He does. And he says, come to me and ask me for wisdom. I won't withhold it from you. I'll give you direction. Now, as a church, we present opportunities, but, but the Lord, what the Lord wants you to do is between you and him. But he does want you to serve him. 
He's given us all sorts of different skills and gifts and cast lots, in a sense, for us. And he's put us in a certain place with certain circumstances around certain people. But the invitation to volunteer is really just a calling to become who God has already made us to be. The Christian life is not about having a religious philosophy on top of a human experience. It's not just a hat we put on that this is my religion hat now. Before I had no hat or before I had a different hat and now I put on this Christian hat and then I live my human experience. That's not it. The Bible says, no, no, you've been made into a new creation. It's like you've been brought from exile in Babylon to a brand new place, the promised land, and you've been transformed and you're brought into a new kingdom, your new citizens, a new family, a new future, a new direction, a new purpose. It's all new, a new mind, a new heart, all, all of it's new. It has nothing to do with the life that we had before. And we have the chance to become like these Levites who are at the center of what God was doing by accepting his invitation and volunteering to go along with him and to be what we've already been made to be. In Exodus 32, when all of this Levite stuff started, Moses asked a simple question, who's on the Lord's side? That was the question. And the tribe of Levites answered, we are. And that's why we know who the Levites are and we know nothing about the Zebulonites, right? I don't know anything about the Zebulonites. We know about the Levites. And it's because when Moses said, who's on the Lord's side? They said, we are. And he said, come and serve the Lord. That was the beginning. Here in Ezra and Nehemiah, the question was essentially the same. Who wants to serve the Lord? And a few hundred said, we do. And the Lord did something impossible through them. Today, the Lord brings us all as Christians into one tribe, It's not 12 tribes, there's one tribe, right? The church, all set aside for service and ministry and for the spiritual harvest. And he says, who wants to join me in saving souls and changing lives and sharing testimonies and building a spiritual house? If we volunteer to do what we've already been made to do, he will use us and assign us and give to us gifts and opportunities. The power's all his, the choice is all ours. Let's pray.